Welcome back to Schmism Season 2, Episode 2. Today's episode is a special one, the first Schmism panel show. With all that's been going on this year, I've been thinking a lot about nonviolence and social change, uh, topics which I studied in depth years ago in undergrad. So I brought together a few of the people that I used to talk to about peace, justice, and revolution when I was in college to discuss the morality and efficacy of nonviolence. We recorded this not long after the Capitol Hill riot uh, on January 6th, so we spent some time speculating about that strange event. More information has come out in the past week, and I'm sure even more will be known uh, by the time you listen to this. So if you want better analysis of that whole affair, listen to podcasts that are better suited for that, such as uh, QAnon Anonymous did a really great episode uh, going into all these these people and stuff, and, and the, uh, this is the culmination of the last uh, three years of, of online radicalization. Um, or find one of several news shows, politics shows. Um, yeah. At the end of this recording, um, Ryan Knight suggests that this episode be dedicated to Patrick Van Imogen. Um, Patrick was a beloved professor of all of ours. He taught and mentored all four of us, and he passed away in the last year. Um, from cancer. I know he would be glad to hear that we're continuing to debate nonviolent defense and conflict resolution, although I'm certain he would dismantle all of the justifications that Nico and I made for the violent revolutions of the past. He is also the one who brought me to Ireland and introduced me to the people working toward a lasting peace there, um, which reminds me that parts two and three of the Ireland episode will be finished and out on this feed soon. We all owe so much to Patrick and miss him dearly. Um, enjoy this first panel show. Feel free to contact me at schmisms at gmail.com. That's S-C-H-M-I-Z-M-S at gmail.com uh, to let me know if you like the panel show, if you want to hear more panel shows, if you want to be on a show, regular one or on a panel, or uh, if you want to suggest a topic. All right, thanks for listening. Enjoy. All right. Um, uh, I forgot I should do an intro, huh? Um, so today's episode of this uh, of the Schmism is, is a little different. We're doing a first panel discussion. Um, probably won't be as funny, and there's not a story to it like before, but hopefully it's, it's interesting and engaging. Um, with me today uh, is returning guest Nico Aberly. Yo. Yeah. Uh, along with Jana Whip. Hello. And Ryan Knight. Howdy. Um, hey, everyone. Everyone here was a peace studies student at Whitworth University where we did our undergrad. Um, so this year, there's been our topic for the day is uh, is political violence. I have some discussion questions to try and uh, keep this moving, but pretty open ended um, wherever it, wherever the conversation ends up going. Um, starting uh this well i guess just in recent years but especially this year i've been just there's been a lot of public conversation about the efficacy and morality of of uh various tactics um for for achieving different political goals um about particularly about violence property damage um all all the threats of violence all these things um particularly over this last summer 
during the um, Black Lives Matter uh, movement. And then uh, just, you know, I, I'd, that's when I had thought about having this podcast convened. Nico and I were having a good conversation about it. Uh, and then uh, I put it off for a while and then finally got it together. And here I was thinking that it was a few months too late. And then all of a sudden, just yesterday, so you can do the math and figure out when we recorded this. But uh, there, a group of, of folks uh, sort of were, uh, were led into the Capitol building, did some uh, ransacking we're and such. Led. Uh, some, Basically. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, some, a few people were shot. Some people shot the, uh, some on accident self-inflicted and others by the police and whatnot um so the conversations back to the forefront about state use of force individual use of force non-violence civil disobedience all these things and and uh and whatnot so uh as always more as relevant a time as any to to discuss this um i think we should do a brief introduction of everybody beyond just your name um you know, to just justify your presence here on this podcast that like my parents <laughs> and no one else will hear. Um, <laughs> just kidding. Um, y'all know, anyone listening to this probably knows me. I'm a history student. Uh, and, uh, you know, but Nico, Jana, Ryan. Um, <clears throat> my name's Nico, uh, as Jacob said, and, uh, I don't know if there's a good justification for me being on a history podcast. As you said, I once was a peace studies major and now I cut meat and I uh, fight for my coworkers at work. You serve. And I don't think I can call myself a labor organizer, uh, but, uh, you know, fledgling maybe. So there you go. I'm Jana. I also was a peace studies major, um, even longer ago than Nico and Jacob. <laughs> um, I work for a for-profit business, like a lot of other Americans. Um, and honestly, it's the best I've ever been treated as an employee, and I'd love to dive into that sometime. Oh, yeah. I've also, I have a bit of experience in the nonprofit world, and, and that would be I'm pretty interested yeah i uh can i actually sort of in part piggyback on we should talk about that all right great Put oh let's in. do let's do a non-profit for-profit all profits to charity etc like business models and whatnot discussion in the future next panel <laughs> oh you don't want to let us talk about it damn it <laughs> all right we can talk about it today too um ryan Yes. Um, so Ryan, my name is Ryan uh, Knight, and I uh, graduated. Um, I did peace studies at Whitworth as well. Um, and what justifies my uh, presence here today is, uh, I think, the mostly the peace studies degree, but also I was a Peace Corps volunteer in Ukraine during some civil unrest. Um, and then today I'm working for a nonprofit that does democracy promotion abroad um and uh is generally aligned with the u.s government so generally independent but um we share common goals uh, often so right. i guess I, I should probably say that i worked in a nonprofit in honduras that i think you is generally aligned 
Gen generally aligned with the U.S. government and often has overlapping I'm, shared goals. Yeah. But not, um, not, there's no contractual obligation, right? Uh, well, I I would say there there actually may be a co contracts involved because they have deliverables that they have to like uh, probably report to narcotics and uh, international narcotics and law enforcement. I know and like all of those people. So, uh, you know, there is some power being exerted on that organization. So. Yeah, wow. but uh, I, I'm, uh, as with Nico's and actually my organization today, I think works in part with uh, Nico's former organization, but um, that, uh, my organization is independent. And um, yeah, it's, I think uh, this is a particularly interesting topic because this is, you know, something that I feel like I've spent a good portion of my life uh, trying to do is to hopefully, um, you know, uh, change change things in a peaceful way for the better. Yeah, Ryan works for a, a uh, an agency that that maps <laughs> mineral resources. Uh, okay. It's based out of Langley, Virginia. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's no, <laughs> not, not that one. <laughs> so there's there's so many accusations, and it's so funny because if people actually knew what happened inside the organization they would know that uh that was not at all the case but there's all these there's, there's accusations but yeah yeah there's a yeah there's yeah. always going to be bad faith accusations mm -hmm. on the outside from either ideological direction yeah. uh the nonprofit i had the most experience with which again none of us represent any of those organizations currently in this capacity and you shouldn't um, dig up this podcast and try and get anyone fired or anything. But uh, fucking want now. But uh, um, the organization I used to work for for a long time in the nonprofit sector uh, was generally opposed to the U.S. government and generally um, took a line of reasoning ag against federal agencies and, and their actions. So, um, but that's the environmental world. You're less often allied with uh, whatever the biggest mover is when uh you're trying to get them to stop moving things um anyway um to the topic at hand um i think there's there's a try to break down the question of like political violence into into a there's a moral question here and an, and a pragmatic question about whether violent action or non-violent action is more effective or whether violent action or non-violent action is more moral um, and, and I believe like, obviously I think there's going to be some situational dependency to, to answers to those, um, questions. Uh, I, I would, I'm actually so more of a pragmatist philosophically. And so I'm far more interested in the efficacy question than on the like individual, what colors your soul kind of, kind of question of morality. <laughs> um, but I do think it's worth addressing and maybe should be addressed up top um, as to whether or not we, <laughs> uh, and I don't expect consensus out of this group either. I don't want to structure it as a debate where I assign anyone's sides because uh, I don't think that's that useful. Um, it's okay if everyone ends up agreeing with each other and also okay if they don't. Um, but yeah, I, uh, where, where do we, what do we think about the, um, the morality of violence. Actually, let's define violence first and then move into the morality question, right? I think that's maybe more fundamental. Um, how would we define violence and then more specifically political violence? 
I guess violence would be uh, I would define it and I'd love it more if anyone else has anything to contribute but I would think uh, it is hurting people um, maybe we'll just limit it to people now and not think about uh, violence towards animals or the earth or something like that but just uh, hurting people is it violent to like call somebody names and like hurt their feelings physical force is what i was it's, gonna say i would agree with the, the purposes of this discussion. To be, yeah to be yeah. violent i, I think for the purposes of this conversation that that i would limit it to a definition as a as the use of physical force or maybe the coercive use of physical force um maybe coercive is too far and questions of self-defense and I, I would say like coercive is too far because okay. I think that leaves open interesting discussion to not limit it to that because yeah. okay. that word could like do a lot of heavy lifting I think yeah okay so Ryan brought up hurting people though so this is this is my question here so um, especially in the um, over the summer with the, the social movements that were happening in the streets of most of our cities um, most of the uh, physical force was being exerted against windows, um, and and in the form of graffiti and these things. And by protesters, you mean? Right. Yes. Sorry. The, the yes. The the state it was exerting force like against people individually, and and of course some members of in in protest movements were also you know getting into fistfights with the cops and whatnot. But um, a lot of what. I mean, what's specifically even referenced by the Department of Homeland Security was that uh, was that their mandate to protect federal buildings, um, and we saw many times, like with with the looting of of various chain stores and things. Um, I mean, four years ago with the J twenty protests during Trump's inauguration, those people that were charged in that uh, were charged with destroying a window at a Starbucks. Um, so this question of um, how how does what um how do we conceptualize property damage as a part of this is it fully separate um i i tend to think i mean in the morality question that it is fairly separate but that it uh in the the efficacy question it, it comes into more relevance um but curious what others i mean is that violence are we saying that property damage that's what i'm saying violence? it's i'm saying it's outside of what i want to talk what i want to talk about with like in terms of the morality of uh of the use of force but it is destruction of someone else's property is theft if if you allow for if your morality includes private property at all <laughs> it's so interesting because i think it really depends on the uh capacity of the uh, institution or building or person or uh, that you're uh, harming or damaging. So like if you kill, like if in protest to um, like a neighbor that you have, you burn down their house, that's like, you know, that's a form of violence. <laughs> it's like, you know, really very serious, but a, uh, you know, breaking mm -hmm. the window of a Starbucks is such a minor, I mean, that doesn't cost anything to Starbucks in the grand scheme of things, right? So, so yeah. the degree of impact to the victim is should be taken into account. Yes, I, I guess so. Yeah, yeah, because it's it's hurting their physical integrity. Like, not that I'm advocating for breaking Starbucks windows, but um, but yeah, I think that that should be taken into consideration. You're saying so. You're saying like burning down your neighbor's house threatens their ability to to maintain their sort of like bodily autonomy or bodily like health. Right. Whereas exactly the Starbucks window, yeah, the Starbucks window doesn't 
they just replace it. No one, actually, the economy probably does better the more Starbucks windows are broken because the yeah, window. They, yeah, they don't even pay for it. I mean, they already they're already paying for insurance. Yeah. yeah. I mean, taking a step back, maybe we should acknowledge that there are like large bodies of thought of nonviolence and of pacifism that acknowledge that any damage to property is violence as well. And so opposes that, which might be where some of us like as peace studies majors who've studied this are kind of coming from and arguing against is because we've heard that and we've, we've seen that as like part of a body of thought. I think people who like haven't studied this would be like, why are you even considering violence towards physical things? And I think that it's worth saying at least that, you know, there are bodies of thought in, in pacifism that say, you know, destruction of physical inanimate objects is violence or is against pacifism. Well, yeah, and I think that those are, are outside of just like an academic context. Those are like pretty often dredged up when, whenever someone breaks a window in a in a otherwise nonviolent march or something um that it is often brought as like oh this was peaceful until that happened and um that's where i think so there's a lot of i think this is the trouble right why it's important to get the definitions out and we can change them throughout and we'll play around with this but like that um i think there's there's so much equivocation in the sort of public debate over over any sort of social movement political movement is that equivocation among between violence and force and just like um peaceful versus um you know whatever and like the the word peaceful doesn't necessarily mean the same thing as nonviolent. and um i i think like unarmed versus armed is maybe a more important consideration than violent versus nonviolent, and that it's like more clear-cut whether someone is brandishing a weapon or not versus whether they you know did they I, it feels like it's i feel like in some like post post uh analysis that like we're doing like a football play-by-play trying to decide if there's like pass interference and it's like mm-hmm. oh well did he just like hold his arms up to block someone that was hitting him or did he like actually also swing back <laughs> like people doing the like slowing down the video to decide if something was should qualify <laughs> as like martin luther king style nonviolence or not um but if we are considering morality shouldn't we also consider intention and consider i don't know it does it it seems different for me intent even the, if the result is yeah, a that, way. because I, I mean i think we're all thinking about the I, I don't know about you guys but i'm thinking about the protests that we most recently saw that you know overtook congress and how for the, i was watching them and you know you get the sense for them like that they weren't that protesters were not shooting that they were pushing a lot and then just kind of you know i think there were a lot of punches and things like that but um i don't know that that's kind of what i'm thinking of right now i'm wondering how you all are are thinking of those as being mostly violent or mostly non-violent yeah. sorry if i'm throwing if we can oh no we that's can, great keep, keep okay. it going i think that's i think it's mostly non-violent But I I guess it also is like the perspective because I most of the I haven't been following it that closely. And most of the photos that I've seen are of like people trying to hold a door or a window and people like literally like forcing themselves in 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 kind of like what I I, as a violent way. 
again, not a, using necessarily like arms, but it certainly wasn't like, it wasn't, there wasn't no force involved. Right. Just using arms, not arms. <laughs> yeah. Nico's flailing his arms. Yeah. Um, <laughs> they can't see you, Nico. <laughs> oh yeah, right. Um, the, uh, I, yeah, that's something that's interesting with this. I think there, there were a number of people who were like carrying pistols uh, at yesterday's yeah. events. Um, not it was not the majority by any stretch, but like there there are quite and a few shotguns. Yeah, and 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 I think there's also like the presumption based on who these people are and what other events that they've they've been at that like there are concealed weapons all throughout. Right, that isn't the same presumption on in a different. Um, rally or gathering right like the the black lives matter rally i went to in spokane over the summer like i didn't look out at that crowd there was probably maybe one concealed weapon in that crowd or something of 2000 or whatever people but like it's not the presumption whereas like based on the attendance of yesterday's event like i'm assuming there are a lot more um of course you should prove your assumptions whatnot but like when you're if you're in like the role of say someone who's in riot control looking at a crowd like you use those presumptions based on these those are the same people who like showed up to state houses carrying their assault rifles whenever a movement toward banning those weapons was was out uh was was possible or whenever or during like the first mask mandates you know like the fact that these people like the same cast of characters shows up very well armed it, I think should influence how we like view that group. Um, but I think, I mean, they were effective because they weren't using their guns at that moment, right? They were effective because they were using non nonviolent mostly, except for, you know, the pushing and the shoving. Uh, yeah. It's an interesting yeah. point about the hegemony of nonviolence, I think, uh, that that kind of shocks me. I think yeah. it's kind of a bad example to think about the efficacy mm -hmm. of violence versus nonviolence because the type of resistance that you got from the state is not normal um it's also not necessarily you don't necessarily see that often people on the right engaging in these kinds of protests that lead to um property damage like this and not making a moral judgment ideologically either way about that i just um I mean, it's like a tired take at this point, but um, man, can you imagine if those were all BLM protesters, they'd all be shot now. So like, you can't really, uh, for our purposes, you know, we're thinking about uh, the effects of violent or nonviolent resistance to um, uh, a corrupt system or, or a unjust system. Um, and or a capitalist system, and we're not going to receive the kind of polite treatment that the Capitol Police gave to these people. Partly, maybe because they have, like, uh, the police have misguided expectations about how much they actually do support the police, or maybe because there's some malicious intent, maybe because they're demonstrating their support for Donald Trump that way. They, I mean, they basically let them in. So it's like kind of a weird, it's a weird uh, case study in uh, the effectiveness of violence or nonviolence. Yeah, it is. It is odd. It isn't a case of a, 
uh, it, it's not as oppositional as as what we'd think of. Um, this is something in like in the study of nonviolence generally, like what we'd all we all took um, uh, nonviolent defense and conflict resolution class, right? Um, is generally studying like these maximal movements, this this mm-hmm. uh, movements that are for regime change or for like territorial independence and things like this. Um, what happened yesterday is hard to put on that um, that same scale. Although it is an, an, a movement for a regime change, it is like anticipating. I don't. Know, there's there's such a, a bizarre um, blend of of this. I think a lot of what is confusing about the images that come out of yesterday of just people just sort of milling about, like putting their their MAGA hats on on Gerald Ford's statue or whatever, and just sort of goofing around, um, is that like they weren't really being met with much opposition, even that even while doing something incredibly subversive and and seditious. Um, I think nor do, I think nor, nor do I consider it like a a revolutionary tactic, you know. Mm-hmm. like what you said more just like people milling around like i don't know that there's necessarily like an end that they hoped to meet like they wanted to be seen right but maybe that is the extent of it and that's why for me it's it's not like a great example to dive deep into because there's not an overarching like purpose for i it, think i well i i get the sense th- there was Oh, I, I mean, I think the attempt was to, you know, stage a coup basically and sort of stop the election of uh, Joe Biden from going forward. And I think a lot of people that were in that crowd believe that. But I think that what is super useful about because I don't know, you can you, we can talk about that later. But I think what what is super useful is um, looking at what happened yesterday, too, as a, a lack of state capacity to respond to that number of protesters or rioters or whatever we want to call them. Um, it, mm. it, it, cause it, it really reminded me a lot of what I saw in Ukraine in 2014, 2013, where, you know, they started off the same way of not using violence, taking over, um, city council, uh, buildings. And, um, what happened was that the, this, the, the state was too weak to respond to it. And yesterday the state was too weak to respond to it for about two or three hours until, uh, the call went out, and then they were able to sort of regain the capacity because the U.S. government definitely has the capacity. That's, to Yeah, that's yeah, exactly. Say it's not a failure of the state, like that spends a trillion dollars a year on the Pentagon. It was a, a misappropriation of funds for a few hours. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, that that is interesting. Oh, yeah, I was going to say because, like, and there. So again with how this is such a bizarre um case study but but i think maybe worth probing more but like but um is that uh the like threat that that kind of crowd poses causes like can can kind of causes that lack of capacity in in the response um there is so much more potential of that to like blow up into like a bloodbath i think um and that like there was just an immediate retreat, right? Like get Congress people in the safe to the to their safe zones. Let them have the build, not like let them have the building, but kind of let them have the building, blow off some steam and leave. Whereas like a different group with different goals, different demographics to it, different uh, um, level of preparedness and whatnot. You 
I think like the state approaches with like what we saw this summer with the idea that like we can corral these people like these people are generally unarmed they we can just like beat the hell out of a few of them shoot some gas and and move them to where out of the way of the road they're blocking or whatever um and like yeah i, I do wonder if like the pers- the fact that like a lot of like three percent are militia guys are like you don't use the same tack like if you are in the position of like the state trying to corral this like, you don't use the same tactics um because you don't want it to end in a in a bloodbath um i don't know though We're, we don't have uh, the benefit of very much distance time-wise from what happened yesterday but this is i think useful to, to talk through still yeah and maybe go ahead, oh, go ahead Jenna. i was just gonna say maybe to like back up a little bit um like the article that that kind of inspired this conversation was an article called How the World is Proving uh, Martin Luther King Write About Nonviolence that was published in 2016. And one of the parts that they talk about is how the, the benefit of um, nonviolent movements is kind of like their created creativity and their way to like shift because once the people do something the government is going to respond in a certain way so that's the difference for me in this in this most recent happening is that like yes the government was very well prepared in certain ways to respond to like black lives matters movements but it was because it was like multiple events happening all across the country that grew and scaled and people and the government and different forces were able to see how they were forming, where they were forming. It was timely and respond to it versus mm-hmm. this one. There largely haven't been, you know, um, these these like Republican or right movements that are in the streets. And it, mm-hmm. you know, for a number of reasons. But of course, the government was ill prepared. This this type of thing has never happened before. Right. So you're saying like the analog is more to like Minneapolis on May 29th. Yeah. Right. Like when people like footage from that, it's like, where are the cops? Where is the National Guard? It is just like um, the people taking the streets. And for that night, they had them. Right. Um, yeah. That the response that I, that our that our thought about it is, is colored more by what happened in the next month. By which point, I mean, by the time that the the specific Spokane rally I was thinking of, like there were 40 bike cops riding behind the march the whole way, you know, like they, yeah, and they were, you know, they were informed prepared ahead of time. before the march even started. They knew it was happening. They knew they had their certain gear on, they had protocol. They'd been debriefed on it, you know, like yeah. they, they knew what to expect and they knew how they were planning to respond to it. Okay. And this, this is important. I think this gets at what I want, one of my thoughts and like the, efficacy question and tactics question of this is that we often look to these examples of you know the u.s civil rights movement of the uh indian uh decolonization the um independence movements of places like east timor um and whatnot but uh that wasn't isn't as helpful to what the point i was about to make but these uh things from a half a century ago um in terms of our, our, our like cardinal examples of nonviolent movements, uh, successful nonviolent movements in history. And 
uh, now, like at the time, those were shocking and surprising new tactics. Now they're well known. Now they're so well known that it's sort of part of a, a vernacular of how politics is done, right? And it's like this is America. We we protest this way. And what by that I mean like things like the women's march are where you have like this is the largest gathering, like the largest protest in U.S. history. And I say like to what ends when it was on a weekend with the approval of the police and like when no one had to even take the day off of work who showed up like um i do wonder if this like uh that like at this point in history the like creative nonviolence has to get more creative than what it was in the 40s and the 60s when people would get together for a march well, uh, and the state's yeah. not responding the same way. The state knows that like those marchers are going to go home. So there's a lot less of like when they had the marches in in uh, in Derry, in Northern Ireland, and and the paratroopers just started shooting people. Like that doesn't happen to as often anymore because they know that like the state knows that that's not the way to do it either. Well, right? and then the civil rights marches, for that particular example, they were not independent of other action like you had the montgomery boy bus boycott you had sit in you had other kinds of civil disobedience mm -hmm. um that i think are uh yeah i think it's like a good point to say that the march has become like a stand-in uh it's like you can like psychologically check off the box that you have participated in democracy by going on your weekend to like go to the march um, without doing any of the things that are risky. And I think uh, whether it's like a strike or a boycott or a, or, um, a sit-in or, you know, subjecting yourself to like actual state violence, all of those things, um, I don't know. Yeah. Absent uh, mar marches, uh, especially like in that stand-in way, for like all of those other things, the symbolic way. There's, it's just completely useless, yeah. as far as I'm concerned at this point. And yeah. I, I really agree with that. And that's like, you know, it's unpopular to say, but that's my biggest critique of even the Black Lives Matter movement is the fact that like people think that like reposting on social media or standing in the street on a Saturday morning is like somehow going to change something where a lot of these other um, like what Jacob was talking about, you know, um, like the Southern civil rights movement, for example, there was so much strict like strategy and organization and right. mass communal mm -hmm. thought that went into like very, very specific and practical ways that they could put pressure on the government and put pressure on people who had decision-making abilities. And yes, it's very uncomfortable, but that's how, that's how you make change. It's not reposting XYZ blog and thinking that you're an activist because of it. Yeah. And in some communities, I mean, I don't complicated further though, like in some communities that was, um, uh, sourcing and purchasing firearms for all of the adult members of your like segregated black community and making it to where white people were uh, uncomfortable being there at all right like that that gets forgotten maybe it, it probably it isn't the larger part of the civil rights movement but that is uh, a part of it right um yeah and i think uh, the power of marches and the power of protest is to show the like show people how 
how part of a large group it is. You know, yeah. it's just it's to show the mass, but that can't be the only thing that you do to make change. So I'm surprised where I've always felt uh, that these mass events like the Women's March and BLM this summer, they uh, I think you're right. There's a lot of people that just sort of show up and then don't do anything. Um, but I, at least in my experience, and maybe D.C. is a weird place, but I've found them to be very productive sort of rah-rah sessions in a way of getting everyone together uh you know we everyone feels good you're right in it but then there's also afterwards there are commitments that are made and um increased energy and activism that follows uh those those movements so yeah and i right i mean if it's a pep rally for something else i guess that's that can be good it's like if it's instrumental in something else though like i if it's the end then it's 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 insufficient i guess yes, which yeah, i mean i guess all i guess all of these i mean that's stupid to say because all of this is insufficient and like the terrifying possibility of this entire conversation is that basically anything you do like considering yourself a part of the proletariat is ultimately insufficient to like overthrow the specter of global capitalism which has been reigning for like a long ass time at this point. I think it's a so, journey. Go. It's a real journey. It's a journey. It's is yeah. It's about the journey, not the destination. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. Uh, who like, really? Who really cares about socialism anyway? You know. I mean, I'm no, just assuming that that's everyone's destination. It's, it steps forward and steps backwards, but I think, uh, yeah, that like uh, that it's a it's, it is a constant it is a constant struggle. Hmm. No. Yeah. Absolutely. But it's memorialized in in individual moments. And and I think that's where like history sort of betrays that that fact. Right. Um, This is a a classic thing uh, from now on of me reaching for a book for as an example. But um, thinking about. No one can see you, Jacob. Yeah, sorry. This is a (laughs) this is a book about about um, the Peronistas in Argentina. Um, And like this Daniel James has written a lot about like that that trouble of, of memorializing events and, and the way that we um uh do that like just as as people and condense things into singular moments and like we have this like cult of spontaneity i've heard used especially in the united states toward this thing these things that um right like even people who were involved in the planning in the unionizing in the like agitation in like meatpacking in our in argentina in, in buenos aires were like um we'll still just talk about the one day that they walked out and that Juan Perón, and like to, to like break Juan Perón out of prison and, and inst- install him as the president of, of Argentina. Like that day is so big that all of the work that went before it and all of the work that went after it gets subsumed into that single day. Um, and then in our age where no one wants to do the reading, no one wants to listen to their grandparents talk about how such and such was done and follow through on it. There's like a tendency to think like this is like in these climactic moments rather than, you know, like, I don't know, like Gandhi's salt march was a long distance too. I don't know. Like, I, I'm throwing just examples on example, but like, like yeah, I think it, it can't be emphasized enough how, how long it takes. Like the, the general Chicago general strike that led to the Haymarket killings and and the creation of may day as international labor day it was two years in the making there were two years of planning they printed 
posters in every major language spoken by the labor there and and had them on the walls all over there was a lot of planning a lot of meetings just to get the word out to everyone to be able to do something all at once and then i think in our era like the arab spring sort of was this example of these like twitter revolutions the idea that like you could substitute like mass communication uh, allowed for that to happen a lot quicker and i think it did but then um it also allows that energy to dissipate quicker as well and that um yeah go on and also the like the image that it was like only three work weeks worth of demonstration that could unseat a dictator and that's that's what the world saw and that's what a lot of other nonviolent movements saw that like tried to model themselves after that but it just like it just misses so much of what was happening in tunisia for example where there was this like robust organized labor activity and like so many people were striking that the like tunisian economy was falling apart and so it was like it was putting pressure in this really major way but that's not what you see when you're on twitter when you're looking at photos um on the news and and i think that's like it's the same thing with this it's like people and nonviolent movements i mean one of the points in that article i mentioned earlier was that Nonviolent movements are becoming more common, and while they're becoming more common, their rates of success are like de- declining, and right. it's because people are learning the wrong messages from previous nonviolent movements. That's interesting. I so I, I dropped that chart in the in the chat, but the the like rate of nonviolent movements has gone up. That's correct, and it, and the rate of success has also gone way down. Um, I would note that on that chart that simultaneously the rate of success for violent movements has dropped significantly as well. Um, there's an interesting thing here where like regime change and p- territorial independence and like the, these big changes um, peaked in the 90s, right? Peaked with the collapse of the Soviet Union, really. And uh, we haven't seen like there's not even on that chart like a noticeable spike with the Arab Spring, right? Like there's um, the uh, I think that there's something significant to like about the structure of of global of government of the the state the modern state of global capitalism of uh of our technological like environment around us that like these big changes are not nearly as as attainable as they once were or at least as they were throughout most of the 20th century um whether by violent or nonviolent means um yeah yeah to go back to Ryan's point just for a second, and this sort of ties in with what you were saying, Jacob, I, I have been reading Marx and I've had my head stuck in books for a while since the summer um, or like uh, posts like contract negotiations. And so I, I got it in my head that the work world works again like in dialectical materialism where there's just this thing and then this thing and then it just happens naturally uh which obviously that isn't the case uh uh, that's a big problem with marx is that it's just like pretty clean um so i yeah i don't know that's just where my head has been but then like when i was of course when i was uh in contract negotiations with my employer I was like this is great this is like one little thing it's like a little step you can do that's gonna like make everybody's life a little bit better I'm like that's like the kind of thing that we should probably all be hoping for like at this point in our lives you know you just like 
after having lived like two decades and remembering two decades, you go, well, how many more do I have? And like, nothing's happened yet. So like, we should probably just like be okay with like these little victories. And even if they're just moral victories. Well, I, and I think the, these big social movements and protests that are nonviolent specifically, they provide sort of more energy to do those little sort of those little things and to build connections between people and do like the long, the long slog. Cause we can't have a, a women's march every day or a, you know, uh, <laughs> Black Lives protest, uh, or BLM uh, protest every every day. There's, you know, there's things that need to be done. And instead, taking the energy that comes from those movements and those protests and putting them into our daily lives so that we can make people's lives better in small ways, uh, I think is effective. But back to the sort of original question about, about violence, I think that violent protest takes away the opportunities to do those those little good things because people end up getting hurt and dying <laughs> that creates all the cascading problems that come off of that yeah if, if your goal is to I make i think that's right that's yeah that's that's right but there is a certain pressure point that uh, an inflection point that a certain society gets to um where that's your only option and i, I mean i'm kind of jumping the gun here a little bit but it, you know like when I think about the legitimacy or the the morality of certain Latin American uh, left wing militias and groups uh, and rebellions, I you know when you're fucked in a corner and there's nothing left for you, there's no hope of any incrementalism whatsoever. I mean that's justified. That's where that's where I've gotten to where like I wasn't in, in college that's like. Funny give 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 them the arm the peasants uh wow uh yeah. <laughs> no, I, but in some in some sense and that, i was respond to <laughs> well i was thinking about it before this before we we had this podcast and thinking like when is when is it uh just follow and i i think yeah i think i agree with nico that back when i was in college i was never acceptable hundred mm-hmm. percent um and now i think of violence more as sort of um often it i i think nonviolence is more effective i think it it gives more opportunity to sort of you know especially because of how violence can cascade um and destroy so much uh, i think that but i think that violence is sort of uh in a way sort of the the crunch time like when <laughs> when there needs to be a goal that's achieved and um almost in a way of like you didn't do your homework the night before you know um and instead of oh working... so all of college yeah so instead i'm of... talking about myself i'm talking about myself yeah, okay. not ryan because of course ryan did everything instead of working like you know like it's it's i guess it's kind of cheating in a way isn't it like it's either but you're getting you're tr- trying to find a way to get the assignment done um and it's not as effective it's not as good but sometimes it sometimes it it can help get the job done but it's it's not well i mean and sometimes it's uh it is effective and you win uh mm-hmm. but it's just super high stakes right yeah i think that's the thing about it is you're sort of like everything gets amalgamated into a smaller time frame i think we're all in agreement that nonviolent protest is the the preference and preferable yeah i mean like if you could pull off the thing without getting i mean it, okay so like nico earlier said with this contract negotiation that like realizing that like how nice it is to do something that makes a you know a tangible number of people's lives 
at least slightly better in a in a concrete way um taking a bullet in a crowd doesn't do that right like um it might like you have to expand your time scale to to realize the benefits of it but like well i'm not saying bullet in the head is also like it it it, there's this media thing and we can talk about that put a pin in it i'm sorry if if nico had killed everyone he was trying to negotiate the contract with i mean it might have been effective in the short term of achieving the the contract but dude that's so funny dude (laughs) this is like i should do that i mean that's the big thing that's my my biggest argument with what nico said is that yeah absolutely 100 percent can sometimes like expedite an immediate goal but i think in every expedition of an immediate goal, it pushes the ultimate goal f- farther away. And there's well, there's articles that, like that, we link to through that um, through mm-hmm. the article that was talking about how they they got aggregated da- data of 106 nonviolent resistance campaigns, and only in two occasions had the violence progressed the campaign. Like I'm, I'm talking about like, oh, like violence at the fringes of an otherwise nonviolent. Thing. Yeah, yeah. So like, not mostly nonviolent, but like occasionally there was just like a spurt or like a little, like a battle here or there that South Africa is a good example of that. Yeah, I, I yeah, I, I suppose. I suppose. I, I guess like I, I'm thinking of like specifically. I'm thinking of the Sandinistas, and like it's impossible to cherry pick and like have that mean anything necessarily but it does work where you take up guerrilla warfare and you like successfully do regime change within a matter of years but look at where and nicaragua like is. even in no i mean where nicaragua is now is like a whole nother conversation but did the sandinistas so. take power yes they did well okay subsequently yes but like did the Sandinistas take power? Yes, they did. It was successful. They had, and and it was successful. It was successful in spite of the fact that the U.S. spent a ton of money turning Honduras into an like a a a uh, effectively um, fuck an aircraft carrier for the U.S. military, and they still maintained power and maintain power to this day in a completely watered down way and the u.s exerted its power over ortega in a completely different way and ortega became a piece of shit and now we have nicaragua is pure change of power the ultimate goal is that it hey socialism is the ultimate goal i mean did it work did i mean did the sandinistas taking power they did they did some like significant things like really early on i mean investment in health investment in education um like a a strong literacy campaign at the very beginning these kinds of things that you see in like revolutionary cuba the thing you see in bolivia that's happening right now um you know like within within 10 years you're you've reduced poverty by 60 percent just because you're opposing austerity and actually investing in human beings so i mean and in bolivia like it did not take armed rebellion and obviously that's the preference in nicaragua like i think the reasons for the dilution of uh, and the fracturing of the FSL or of the Sandinistas is like uh, a whole another conversation. But I think like there there are an example. I mean, Cuba is also an example where like they successfully did the thing. Right. Um, 
but I mean, look at Cuba today. It's like, you know, there's one family that's been in charge of the country for uh, how long now? And well, I mean, okay, so this no, is... no, I mean, that's 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 true. But I mean, what is the reason? I mean, the the reason for the centralization of power in uh, in these uh, like socialist uh, experiments in in Cuba or in uh, Nicaragua, like what is the reason for the centralization of power? The reason is because of regional hegemony of the United States. It's not because of the, their choice was to skew democracy. It was absolute paranoia and psychological warfare on the part of the United States of America, the imperialist power, that you're turning around every moment thinking you're going to become the next Jacobo Arbenz or uh, Salvador Allende. Like, it's totally reasonable. Yeah, I was going to say that uh, the, the, the formation of the like of the political culture of Cuba is in response to the counter revolutionary movement that the United States funded and 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 uh, and, and the back. violence that the United States attempted with the Bay of Pigs invasion. Right. right. Like that's yeah. A, a huge of it. Yeah. Um, Which is, I think what we're seeing in Venezuela today, too. If um, and if we think about so. There's a how oh, is the guy's name? There's the the Furies of of Revolution is this like big book about the French Revolution and the Russian Revolution or whatever, but this idea that like there is like a necessary terror in order to solidify consolidate power of any kind, um, and that uh, that those on the like on the left or at least okay so if you think about the left as being those who are fighting for a more just and equal world. Um, <laughs> those goals are antithetical to the unleashing Hopefully. of terror, right? That's if 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 your goal is to like provide a better life for everyone, like unleashing terror is is oppo- is in opposition to that goal. Right. So when we look at examples like Cuba, like um, like I mean Mao's long march in China and these things, where like the uh the uh they're difficult to assess because like well like um because of that, but they're in Cuba specifically, I know, like there's a calc- there was a calculated use of violence for the and, and in Russia as well. It, it, it's again like, but how accurate people's calculations are is, is I think largely what you should, what there is to assess. But there's this calculated use of force to consolidate power, not force for the sake of of like an emotional fulfillment of like ha- not not force for hatred, not force for like revenge, but like demonstrating like who controls the monopoly on violence in this in this state who uh what is justice in this place what is like so that's i think that's why and then as a result socialist movements tend to have had show trials in which and like public executions and and this goes all the way back to the french revolution right of uh, their public executions rather than private or rather than like hidden and secret executions, because it demon because the point of it is to bring it out in the open, is to show everyone this is who's in charge, this is the new regime. the 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 oppressors of the old regime are uh, are being dispatched with justice is being dealt, and then we can move on. And that without yeah. doing that, there's no moving on. And that the counter revolutionary um, forces tend to intervene in the midst of that, using that show violence as that that was meant as symbolic violence as the justification for very real terror uh, in the counter-revolutionary sense, right? So looking at the Sandinistas and saying, like, any um, 
I don't actually know the specifics of the Sandinistas to say that like that what what show that. trials or anything might have taken place, and saying like that's the justification for the Contras coming in and just like burning a village and killing the nuns at the rectory or whatever. Um, this happened in El Salvador in the 1930s. That like the um, that people saw that like that they they burned libraries because that's where the records for um, land holdings were held, and the point of that was to redistribute the land to the peasants and especially to the indigenous people. Well, they said, look, these people hate our whole society. They're burning our library down. And by these people, they meant the indigenous people. They ignored the like whatever percent that weren't. And uh, and then they just went through and, and just murdered one in five of all the indigenous people as the counter-revolutionary response. Um, there's a way trying, in which... And I also want to say, I'm not yeah. trying to chalk up every uh, like socialist republic mistake to... Uh, it, it, like in the Western Hemisphere, to just U.S. hegemony, like yeah, it's not. Yeah. It's all, not true. I guess it's okay. not all bread and roses. I guess also, my we, point, we're... though, with with bringing up all these examples, is to say that um, that the violent, like violence executed by like revolutionaries, is often in like a calculated sense for a specific purpose, not with the goal of like instituting a reign of terror that continues, but as like a period of terror as a transitional period from the old regime to the new, whether that's effective and how well it's it's calculated and who ends up in charge of it, you know, you end up with a Stalin in charge of it and it doesn't end, right? Yeah. That's that, would, that was going to be my point. And I'm not aware of, I think may, maybe France, but it seems like I'm thinking of the alternative to that of actually having fair, open, transparent court cases that are, you know, sort of fairly judged and rule of laws upheld, um, maybe more like what was in Ukraine after their revolution or I'm not aware of any show trials that happened in the U.S. after the, the U.S. Revolution. Um, those might be, it seems like the, if we just look at those two examples, those didn't lead to the same levels of terror and violence that happened in, in some of these other countries that had these sort of kangaroo courts and, and violence. For sure. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, I think uh, part of that is looking at, I think with the, well, the American Revolution is an interesting historical case, and I don't know if we'll get it, if it's worth getting into, my, but... Oh, I have all sorts of problems with it, but yeah, we can. <laughs> well, I would say that that in a similar sense that uh, the U.S. like the the Bay of Pigs equivalent is the War of eighteen twelve, right? The, there is the fact that like the hegemony of the new regime was challenged in a way that like required overwhelming force to to uh, reinstitute, you know, and like alien and sedition acts were passed as part of that. Like there was a period of time in which like. Total war was declared. And who were the main victims in the War of 1812? It wasn't the British. We ended up being really close friends with them following it. It was the Native Americans who were who ended up being the, the victim of that. I, I think there's maybe some more parallels in that to, to like something like El Salvador in the 30s or, or Nicaragua in the 70s than we might think. That's a good point. I didn't consider that. Um. Well, I feel so like, though, yeah, that's Jana. arguing that like nonviolent movements are effective because pre like due to previous violent movements a little bit, and I I don't know that I can buy on to that all the way. Explain that further, Jana. <laughs> I need a minute to collect okay. my thoughts on that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, what. Are what one of the things that I have thought recently is that this entire this is gonna I'm sorry this is just like 
just uh hit it is just get, getting totally blackpilled on this conversation but like i recently have just thought like social change is impossible to understand like i don't even know sometimes violence works sometimes it doesn't Nonviolence is like uh like doesn't seem to work it feels like good people get murdered no matter what if you're actually trying to change things for the right reason like what's the point of this conversation at all uh that's sometimes my question and like maybe i should just like hang out and like chill because that's pretty tight no nico that that actually might be part of the point of this conversation is to think like i mean it does make me realize that yeah there are like every every conflict between ruling elites and uh the ruled is very context specific and there's different capacity there's going to be different capacities of the uh of the state to use violence and different capacities of uh citizens to use violence or non-violence um so yeah i think that's a good point actually if there's any like government sorry go ahead jenna I was just going to say that I think like scholars can overwhelmingly predict acts of violence in a way that they can't predict acts of nonviolence succeeding. Mm-hmm. Like people like scholars, you know, it's not it's not necessarily like everyone knows it can can predict almost like armed campaigns, coups, state collapse, like those factors that like lead to these big mostly violent acts that like are traceable um and that and it's harder to talk about non-violent things and to specify these different attributes need to be in place for a non-violent campaign to arise and to be successful but like there is study and there is movement in that that i mean i was reading some studies before this conversation that were that were really intriguing and really like um yeah, like interesting of like what makes a movement successful and like what what the context has to be for it to be successful. And like, if you have all of that, then it doesn't seem as arbitrary as what you're saying. Right, yeah. Um, that's what I want to know. So if you could like drop those links in the chat, that'd be great. <laughs> uh, we'll put any, uh, I'll put a lot of links in the in this show description as well. But um I, yeah, so I think that gets us nicely to, to talking about um, about the uh, I think what these goals are that we're talking about. I I, I think all all of us kind of, but mostly me and Nico steered us toward talking about like socialist revolutions in the twentieth century, which is a completely different context than talking about like trying to achieve you know police reforms in the United States today or like medicare for all in the united states today are these things that um if the goals don't require like in territorial independence or regime change then i think the like the the tactics should be viewed completely differently um which is why it is interesting that like the civil rights movement in the u.s and the um indian independence movement are usually like held right next to each other as like gandhi and, and mlk whether well, they're quite different um goals right quite di- um so getting to like for the sake of political change today assuming that we're not uh i mean at the moment pushing for a new constitution a new regime change but we're, we're pushing for like 
you know, um, the repeal of, of right to work laws or like the passage of a better healthcare regime or like, um, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming that, that you all share my, like some prop, of my goals, but 22. like, yeah. Um, you know, uh, more permissive, uh, import laws on, uh, on automatic weapons, things like that. They're like, <laughs> um, <laughs> Nico, what is prop 22? Prop 22 was, uh, so Cal- California, the legislature oh, passed uh, some that. law. How that- is that? That I'm prevented Californian. Why are you talking about that? Prop twenty two. Yeah, it's because Nika's part what? of a media ecosystem that I am as well, in which all of our <laughs> Twitter and podcast because... people we follow live in either L.A. or New York. So oh, every problem in New York <laughs> and California. No, I mean that's. I don't think that's entirely true. I guess. I guess maybe my, my media ecosystem is Portland, L.A., and New York. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but does anyone and Honduras? Don't forget, don't forget Tegucigalpa. Yeah, I, I mean, I guess I throw in like Greece occasionally into my like things I'm aware of, but um, but I know too much about New York for someone who's never been there. Uh... Wait, but Ryan, you know what Prop Twenty Two is? Yes, yes, it's about okay, the okay. property taxes, right? No, no it's, it's a... the Uber thing. Oh, that one. Oh, yeah. Sorry, I'm glad we cleared that up. Then, yeah, I yeah. I don't vote. I didn't vote in that election because ah. I was voting in DC. Gotcha. That's why. Okay, because... good. Not because you abdicated your civic no, responsibility. Actually, this gets to the the point. So, uh, sorry. Actually, <laughs> I'll let you finish. But I have a, a thought. No, I have nothing else to say. All right. Well, I'll go ahead then. Yeah. So, so I think that that was. So we have these. You just listed a a, a bunch of sort of social issues um that um sort of have a uh they, i mean they, there's decisions that need to be made on if they should be or shouldn't be and um in as opposed as opposed to using mass social movements uh the i mean the best way to solve these uh problems is through elections in this country which is sort of our state instituted revolutions that happen at not state instituted nonviolent ever revolutions that happen every two to four years. Right. Yeah, I, I think. Yeah, I mean that's that's theoretically what they are, but I would argue that 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 that's like a rosy view of what our elections are. I'm sure they're better than a lot of places, but yeah, maybe I'm still riding high off of Georgia, but yeah, <laughs> I mean I do agree that. It's- well, I just still think of Bernie uh, losing to Pete Buttigieg. Um, I'm assuming that, uh, Ryan, you're referring to uh, the 2008 Russian invasion of Georgia. (laughs) Um. (laughs) That was not correct. But but that is a fair fair (laughs) in my uh, geographic focus. (laughs) I mean, but I think that there's a point in that, like maybe the reason why it seems kind of like nonviolent movement seems kind of artificial or like impossible in the context of the US is because we have a structure that allows us to make those changes nonviolently as well. You know, like maybe maybe in the con like like contextualizing nonviolent movement, it just makes more sense in places that people don't have freedom of speech and people can't vote their way to what like the betterment of their country 
Um, yeah, I mean, I, 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 I see that, but I also look at the civil rights movement and I, I don't want to discredit that or I like, you know, that, that stands out to me as like, that was still in this country. Like, yes, it wasn't maximalist, but it, it succeeded in ending segregation as, as a law right. when even the, the large majority of people didn't want to vote, vote that way necessarily. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think ending the like rule reign of the uh, Jim Crow Democrats in the South is an equivalent to a regime change in a smaller country, you know, or right. Like that's pretty significant. There is a political coalition who lost power as a result of the civil rights movement. Um, there's a, a realignment in the country around it. So, so it, it does have an element of, of regime change that didn't just result from the electoral campaigning. It had to have this underlying, like underlying proof that there was, there was broader demand for this um, kind of change. Um, but I, I think elections were key because, you know, right. um, that LBJ never would have signed off on it, right? If if he, I mean, he gained so much from getting all of those votes, right? That there were, And there was the, the moral responsibility, of course, too. But um, there is uh, the, the, I mean, elections produce incentives for um people to make changes and because uh you know the the, the electorate will hope theoretically respond positively and uh vote for that candidate maybe this <laughs> go ahead i was gonna say if we believe that like the, the like what makes change is by putting pressure on something then elections do exactly that. Elections are that tool in some ways. You know, it puts it puts pressure on something to change. Um, but it was it was it, like while you can't exclude the elections, it also wasn't the elections alone that made that change. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's and, where I think. And, and I mean, I, I think the other point to make here, which is maybe a dumb one, is that elections in this country are totally diluted by money and advertising because people are not, they don't vote in a vacuum. They vote in a just like totally twisted, like perverted capitalist owned media environment. Um, and so that has a lot of influence. I need to look at Jake. I need to click on Jacob's him to holding see what that something. Was. He's holding something up to the screen. Uh, that's a, it's a poster listeners. I lifted off a wall in Derry that says, uh, never be deceived that the rich will permit, permit you to vote away their wealth. Um, exactly. That's what I'm trying to say. I just hit this <laughs> picture I mean, of that's, Honduras that's the on the ground. Whoops. That's the like the, the hack anarchist line of, uh, of if voting did anything, it would be illegal. But anyway... Oh, we lost Ryan. Uh, well, hopefully we get Ryan back. Ryan's hiding. Wait, is he actually gone? No, Ryan's back. Okay. Um, <laughs> so uh, I, I don't actually believe necessarily that like, if elections did anything, they'd be illegal. But um, I just thought it was a cool poster. Uh, the uh, the <laughs> point I'm getting at here is, like, is that it needs some kind of pressure. So if there is a candidate that is like represents that sort of pressure then great but if if the available pool of candidates are are just you know different faces on the same policies then like elections are no longer 
exerting pressure on a system. And that's where I think like strikes and boycotts and these things are, are more effective because they, they always target pressure points. There's like, yeah. I mean that, but uh, not that, that, not to say that like elections don't matter and only labor does, but like that, that like there's a time for each. And, it all. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, like okay, that's like, probably right. I think in a lot of elections in our country now, and why we're seeing increased civil unrest is that they are not like between pressure points. I mean, the think about, I mean, in the smallest example, the things that re- people really don't care about and get really checked out on is like, yeah, we have judicial elections here in Montana. I don't know if they're in your states, but like, the judges that are on yeah. the ballot, look them up, you know, and it's not usually like, oh, this person believes this thing and like X, and this person believes Y. It's like they both kind of are the same. You can vote or not. <laughs> and we have so many elections in this country that are like, well, you could vote or not. Both people kind of believe the same thing. And unless you do a bunch of a deep dive into them personally, and whatnot, you don't really know. And I think it's like leads to so many much apathy um, amongst voters. And also like then like if if I can if I look at like my choices and it's between, um, you know, or like you live in a place where where it's a safe district, like. Okay, where the rep, the district my parents live in, uh, Paul Gosar is the rep. He won by like he got like seventy eight percent of the vote or something this last election. If you absolutely despise Paul Gosar like I do, and occasionally delete tweets about him so that you don't get banned from Twitter for saying that he should be, his body should be found at the bottom of Lake Havasu, um, then you uh, uh, I'm not saying I put it there. I'm just saying that it should be, but. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, what Can what you option? Say that? He's <laughs> probably one of his siblings that put it there. To be honest, yeah, yeah. I can't. Uh, I, oh, I can't right. do that's anything. That guy. That's that guy. Um, Is that that guy? Yeah, he's one of the worst. You told me about that. Oh my god, it's fucking hilarious. You should tell the listener. Yeah, um, I'll put the clip in here. But uh, the uh, the like, what what option do I have for like preventing that guy from being a congressperson? Well, it's it's a long. I mean, look at. I mean, it, it in uh, Gosai's district. Think of it more like Belarus, or <laughs> like <laughs> where you where you need to play the long game. I, that I know this is why you listen Belarus. to the schmism, everybody. You listen to the schmism for the comparisons between Northern Arizona and Belarus. And Belarus, because Belarus, I in uh, when I started d- doing the work I'm doing now, people always said no. No, but, but I mean, we, we've Belarus 30 years now. One guy, like, no, no way is it ever going to change. It's just Belarus. Like, no one was donating any, no one was focused on Belarus. No one was, was thinking about Belarus. And then uh, Lukashenko decided to hold an election and just, you know, messed it all up um, and tried to, you know, claim too much of the victory and then started beating protesters and everyone lost it. And, uh, you know, he's still in power and he's still um, probably going to stay in power, but it is in the long term, uh, like there is a massive social movement that has developed in Belarus that will change Belarus forever. Um, and I think, uh, I remember back in at Whitworth, John Yoder in that nonviolent defense and conflict resolution class talked about quietism. And um, do you remember that? But it all basically just kind of waiting it out and knowing that like eventually like there will be an opportunity for change. There's no way. The only thing that's constant in, mm-hmm. in uh, life is change. So I don't know. That's maybe it's my uh, starry idealism, but I, I think just wait. No, for... I, I, 
I mean, I think that's right. And it just like having participated in the Bernie campaign to a certain extent, I think that after he dropped out, everyone, well, I, I mean, and by everyone, I mean everyone on my Twitter feed and my friends were like, oh no, nothing good will ever happen again. We lost our chance. And like, It's it's just an opportunity. I mean, as you say, it's just an opportunity to like learn and get better and like do your own little niche thing until like, it's, yeah, and and uh, yeah, build power and and like uh, be be better prepared for the next time that comes around because you absolutely do have to wait. I think this is one of the bullshit things that Whitworth taught us was that that you were the agent somehow. You're absolutely not the fucking agent of change. You're not. You 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 are uh, basically irrelevant. Jacob was going to use this and, uh, and the best the... diversity, and here you are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Jacob Jacob was going to do that, but, and, and the no, but the best you can hope for is participating in something that matters. Yeah, but that but that's it still makes sense to me like like what what would you what would you say to a group of college kids who are like new out in the world you say like you don't matter you can't do anything to move to like move towards change you can't get to the place that you got to where like you say these small steps they matter because they move us towards this you don't get uh, by yeah, someone telling you that it doesn't matter so like yes it was I, so overgrandized and there's yeah the religious thing right to jump into <laughs> but it also is like it's also i would just I temper guess. like the hands of christ talk a little bit more like more pragmatic uh, like one person, who one did not attend Whitworth University. Than... Right now, Nico is referring to how uh, our former professor used to. Um, I'm breaking through the fourth wall right now and speaking directly. <laughs> um, but uh, how our professors used to, I, I don't know which professor, but used to refer to students as the hands of Christ is acting uh, in some way uh, as though we were agents of Christ himself. Yeah. I mean, and maybe we are, maybe theologically that's right, but also like we're not Jesus, except we are. Never mind. That's a whole other conversation. <laughs> okay. Um <laughs> I don't know. I, I I what what to Jan, what Jana was saying about like well what do you tell young people that like uh, I remember John Pell um shout out to John Pell and the Whitworth English department giving this great like speech at one point about how like it's not a matter of like whether or not you will change the world but that like it's unavoidable um I, and i think that's worth noting because like social movements are built of individual people in the end and like uh you can be part of one or not like you can stay home or not and and absolutely you can you can just work at the as a butcher or you can be a shop steward as a butcher right like that like doing <laughs> being involved choosing to be involved in that is, is great and like teaching people teaching younger people that those are opportunities that exist. That's something that like watching like the people on the Twitter feed and then media sphere and stuff sort of discover that like with the collapse of the Bernie Sanders campaign this, uh, this April that like, you know, you, people who are like got no job and that's what they were doing was just volunteering for Bernie. It's like, okay, I'll get a job at a grocery store and like 
join the union or like i'll get a job you know at um a warehouse and see about like organizing co-workers that like awakening salt mm-hmm. tasty <laughs> what was that <laughs> what uh, i was just uh shouting out the uh process of salting into a workplace <laughs> huh? is that the 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 like subversive is marxist an, phrase for that, that <laughs> no it's just a, it's just where you no it's not an acronym i don't know maybe it is an acronym but it's just where you uh get a job for the sole purpose of organizing the workplace to join a union oh, that's beautiful yeah i mean like well, i mean yeah. sorry to interrupt i mean like i just think of like specifically our generation like these like postmodern millennials who had to live through a market crash and domestic terrorism and you know coronavirus and all these other things and i think like like our biggest struggle isn't people who care too much our biggest struggle is like a lot of people who care too little and are non-committal and like laissez-faire about things like it is what it is whatever and so in that perspective like if i was a professor to kind of like wide-eyed innocent Whitworth kids, I absolutely would be pushing so hard. Like yeah. you can make a difference. You can do something. And even if they're disappointed down the road, at least they know, like they, they end up where you're at, where like the little things do matter. You- yeah. I think they matter in some spiritual sense too. Like, I think it, it matters to yourself. It matters to like the cosmos that you like do the right thing. But you know, like when you're talking about it from the practical perspective, there's just so many things that are so much greater than you. Like you have to, I mean, honestly, if you're going to do some of this crazy shit and like believe some of it is going to be like possible at all. Like, I think you have to have like some amount of, of like hope and like faith and like i'm sorry to go there but like it is impossible i guess maybe i should just talk from my own perspective that like the the black pill that like mentioned earlier like you you have to is that a matrix really easy it is it is a convoluted matrix reference yeah believe (laughs) yeah it's it's just it's just a stupid stupid internet thing um but anonymous so uh now we use phrases like black pill um nihilism i i just think you you have to have yeah nihilism it's nihilism is very tempting it's very easy to get into i think like once you uh leave the like little cute little nest um and uh uh I don't know. I think you have to have some amount of like irrational hope or like religious hope hmm. to That's beautiful. to participate in it. Um, because I I just don't get it. I like otherwise. I think there's an interesting thing here, right? So I think in if your ideal is a non, is nonviolent movements, is political organizing, labor organizing, these sorts of um, avenues toward change, that you have to believe in things greater than yourself in your placing yourself in a historical uh narrative placing yourself in the midst of a larger story that started before you and continues after you and in which at best you can hopefully be part like a, a positive um influence on a chapter of it um whereas if you allow for like the violent 
route route to achieving your goals um it is much easier to cast yourself as that individual hero right like um to be john brown um like on raiding harper's ferry to be um um i had a second example but uh but like the 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 heroes of the other side being of the other on the other side they're on the same side i think like Martin Luther King Jr. probably admired John Brown. Um, to think of someone who's, I mean, less heroic, but I think that sort of like using violence as a to be the heroes reminds me of that was a, that Kyle kid who yeah. shot those people. Yeah, like I think like that sort of I'm the I'm going to use violence to achieve my political ends gets you in the, those sorts of ways. And it just happened that John Brown was on the right side of history, but he unfortunately used. Uh, maybe the wrong methods well, to go about it well, i don't know if he did I mean, though like i th- i think well, it's the think jury's did, really but, out on whether or not jo- <laughs> the, but the jury is out on all of these things because so many of them are questions of like strategy and tactics and organizing which in most of these cases certainly in military strategizing i have no fucking clue whether something is good or bad when it comes to labor organizing i have no idea if it's good or bad i'm just starting to learn like when it comes to like uh protest tactics all these all this shit like you like within each one of these avenues are like different tactics and things that have been tried and people who are like telling stories about what works and what doesn't. And I am incapable at this point of like actually evaluating this one versus this one um, or just within one avenue of change. And it's just very frustrating. You know what I mean? So it's just like, okay, I'm going to just like buckle down and try to learn one of them. Yeah. I guess that's kind of where I'm at in yeah. my life. Yeah, I'm, I'm not going to join. Um, I was going to say, Nico's still answering the why are you uh, qualified to be in this conversation question from the beginning. <laughs> but uh, uh, <laughs> Apparently. <laughs> but um, the, uh, the I remember now my other example of an individual causing massive change on like through their own like really bold action and it was John Wilkes Booth and um that's why I had John Brown and John Wilkes Booth to oppose each other right like um like a single person can use violence to cause a huge amount of change right like Lee Harvey Oswald can just like you know break people's brains and eventually create I don't know QAnon. I mean, um, if, if you think Lee Harvey Oswald was one guy yeah. um but the, I mean the the, the oh my gosh. yeah the uh, the point being like um yeah I do I do agree with you Nico like like the 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 results are so difficult the like the assessing what caused what there's there's always so many inputs in this that it is difficult to say and like who am I to comment on like military strategy type things and like or I can't on on most of this stuff um, I mean it said, seems like John Brown's calcul- military calculation was like really way fucking off yeah, like right. it seems like doomed from the start and I don't think he cared because that man was living in a holy narrative yeah he was God's hands and feet like as he saw it so um, I mean I feel like we're returning to the same point where like, he was not educated at Whitworth by the way for the record. <laughs> John Brown wasn't <laughs> There's a statue of him in the Kansas State House, though. So, <laughs> I mean, like that violence and violent movement is absolutely can be successful at achieving short-term goals, um, especially like media attention, um, the perception 
um, of strength um, and commitment to more radical members. Like all of those things were benefited by that Kyle, I don't even Kyle remember his name, Rittenberg yeah. guy. Um, but like, also just like the catharsis of doing something and everyone's like, finally justice, I feel a little bit better. But then like, almost always, I feel like it undermines the longer strategy of like See, that's, growing a huge group that. of people together. Like the whole like social movement is made when there's like a massive group of people that like believe in something and it's like that collective strength that does it. And those types of acts of violence, um, they they exclude people. They don't allow you to pull third parties into the question. They, um, they, they are. It's the opposite of diversifying your base. That's true. That is literally what it is, and I think that also can be good. That also like holds people account to their commitment to the movement to see the radical commitment to something as extreme as well, violence. So while I agree with you absolutely that it fails to diversify the movement. Uh, it it can also like uh, demonstrate like a certain person's commitment and exclude people. So in a good way, maybe this is wrong. Well, yeah, I'm going to illustrate. Though, I'm going to illustrate Nico's point with yeah. uh, with uh, some examples, and, and yeah. then you can all yell at me for how they're bad examples. But <laughs> good. Um, but so in the Russian Revolution, um, the Bolsheviks made up a. Well, that went well. Yeah. Well, it did for a while. They they did make it to space, but uh, uh, the 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 Bolsheviks. <laughs> Um, they turned a, 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 a mostly surf society into like... They killed 3.5 million Ukrainians. <laughs> I don't have all of the details to say what... Whether, but like, hey, yeah, that's, that, that's, that's bad. I, uh, but they, they did uplift yeah. the Russia out of like a deep poverty and withdrew them from the First World War, which was just slaughtering them by the, by the millions. I mean... But look at where they are now. Yeah, from different forces a hundred years later. (laughs) We're like not even going to let him get to the analogy. We're just like, this time I've spent in post-Soviet countries has not painted the Soviets well. Okay. So, so yeah, I mean, <laughs> so I think I'm going to try and illustrate Nico's They're point. They're a hegemonic imperial power. Yeah. So Nico's point, I think about like not having a diverse group of people versus like the effectiveness question um and and without without applying any sort of moral categories to it um the bolsheviks made up about 20 percent of like the saint petersburg like soviet representation whatever but like when it came time to write a constitution they locked everyone else out of the room and had armed guards stationed at the door and they wrote their constitution right and they so like they were by like the way that they acquired and consolidated power excluded like is not it was not a democratic method and as a result it was it was effective and efficient right at like carrying out its goals now this is why i said i'm removing moral categories just talking about efficiency then the thing i'm going to compare it to this is why you should yell at me is uh if you look at the occupy wall street movement where (laughs) there was full democracy anyone's allowed to speak there's no hierarchy of any kind like 
it's this thing that gets often criticized as having no leaders and just sort of American revolution. Why'd you have to go with the Soviet? The, the, I mean, I think the, uh, okay. Right. Sorry. Yeah. You're right. Ryan here. Wait, can I ask a question? Just like (laughs) an empirical question, because I'm not actually like, or a historical question, because I'm not actually like nearly as familiar with these things as Ryan is. And neither is Jacob or maybe even Jana. I like, uh, is there, like it sort of seems like I mean obviously it's very clear to me that Stalinism is bad. Um, it's clear to me that like uh, the kinds of things like uh, like the USSR was a failed experiment. Uh, do you see like the Russian Revolution in response to like uh, like the Russian Tsarist Empire as like yes. a good thing? Because that yes. seems. Yeah. I, I see it as a failed revolution, and I, but but uh, after revolution... the fact. So Jacob's yeah. point still stands. Yeah, yeah. No, I think if you could go back to the I don't know the Bolshevik meeting in Saint Petersburg, I, I would have been on board with that. I would have been on board, and then once they started like you know the mass persecutions and the throwing people in concentration camps and things like that. Yeah, uh, that seems bad. Yeah. Um, did you like Trotsky? Uh, I uh, I don't know that much about Trotsky, but from what I've read about, he was a Menshevik, right? And yeah, I, it seems like his views were much more sort of. Well, he, uh, I, I just know he wanted like dem- yeah. democratize the party or something. And I don't know, whatever. I, know I totally derailed us, but I was just like um, curious. Sorry, Jacob. You can. I hope you can edit this later. To well, so I I, I, do, I should clarify. Uh, Trotsky was a Bolshevik, not a Menshevik, but. Um, Thanks for clarifying. I mean, the, the the very the most basic level, of like Trotsky versus Stalin, is the idea of international socialism versus socialism in one country, like with international workers' movement versus a like isolated nationalist workers' movement, um, workers' revolution. Anyway, moving on. Um, may, the point I was trying to make was this thing about like the. I mean, I'm a big fan of democracy, but like there is a way in which democracy is incredibly inefficient and like in a on the street movement sense is is uh that inefficiency can spell like disaster right the idea that like like look at what happened yesterday there was i mean there was a goal of stop the vote count but what happened the vote count happened just 10 hours later because there was no one in charge there was no plan there was no list of demands there were no hostages taken there were no any of this like they could it wasn't for how much planning that went into it and how much like militia training a lot of these people do on the weekends and stuff that was really not like a regimented thing it was a sort of anyone can show up and and in a way like because like a lot of that takes from our contemporary approach to like nonviolent movements of in marches and, and things which i don't think is effective we talked about that earlier like that um, the sort of leaderless and amorphous thing, and then everyone just goes and everyone, you know, gets hungry at a certain point and leaves. And uh, uh, what you have in a like, in a violent movement, you tend to have like your officer corps or whatever it is. You have your like smaller group who have a homogenous set of beliefs, and that means that like there are voices not being heard, and that can carry out things that are awful, like the purges in the Soviet Union or um, the continuation of slavery after the American Revolution things like that um but at the same time they're capable of carrying out their like real change it's, it's, in in like the, in their it's not a moral life. question it's an effectiveness question yeah. and it is more effective well having a smaller I, group I of people it's easier to make think, decisions that's just i think it's going to be I a fact the fact of like having organization and having leadership is undemocratic 
Like no, I feel like that's all. the argument being made. And I and I I just immediately like like I, I recognize that like what happened yesterday, even the Black Lives Matter movement, I think a huge and the Occupy Wall Street and we are the ninety-nine and blah 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 blah. They all lack leadership and they lack pragmatic goals. I think if everyone who showed up to the Capitol building yesterday, their intent was get the boxes that have the votes in them. Mm-hmm. It would have been a totally different scenario, absolutely different. But it's like this arbitrage, like a large group, like very nebulous goal instead of something specific that puts pressure on something. And like obviously, I'm glad that they didn't have the like communal strength to do that. And it took, you know, like um, four. 20 30 year old like um senate aides carrying the boxes out with no problem whatsoever to avoid that catastrophe but again it's like it's a matter of organization and a lack of centralized leadership and i think that is why the southern civil rights movement was really effective it's because names come into your head and like rhetoric comes into your head but it's rhetoric tied to a person Mm -hmm. and it it just isn't people doing their own causes without direction yeah. well yeah that's 100 percent why uh this bernie sanders coalition is completely rudderless now because for whatever reason like this old new york jew could get a lot of people in the same room and talk to them um that was okay i usually i did a lot better in february um and yeah. uh and and now it's just I mean it's a sort of firing squad. Mm-hmm. So I mean, yeah, yeah, you need that leadership and you need it in a democratic way. I think is like what I'm hearing from Jana. Like ideally, yeah, I I, I agree. I, I I was I think saying I want to say that um, that like clear leadership is more common amongst violent movements, but that it isn't impossible. You know, it isn't like necessary to like be a military movement in order to have that i just think like historically military movements tended to have that that like consolidated clear leadership whereas yeah. nonviolent movements and, don't always have and one of the strengths of using violent means um and something that's necessary is if you have people risking their well-being risking their lives that high risk high cost mentality then there's like this interpersonal trust and this interpersonal like bond that has to be formed they have to be so connected to one another for it to be effective you can't just talk to someone that you've never met and be a violent leader but because of that it also makes these violent revolutions much smaller well i think that non-violent revolutions also have that when the state responds with violence Hmm. and i think also the uh like we haven't mentioned gene sharp at all in this conversation yet jesus like, christ gene dude sharp was all about uh like uh in his uh was it manual he he talks so much about the need for uh, for the nonviolent movement to remain orderly and disciplined and um yeah. have a core core leadership that will will guide it um, in a very sort of militaristic way, but th- just without the use of violence because his whole yeah. argument was, was just not effective. I guess I, I see it more as like the bond of collective action and less of the bond of like, I will die for you tomorrow because I'm risking everything. Mm-hmm. I think that I, that's what, what 
Wait, maybe I, but that is what happened with, with so many successful revolutions, like in, in Ukraine, that when, you know, protesters were being shot in the streets, they weren't using violence, but they were like facing the fact that oh, we could all die tomorrow, but we'll die for something together, even though we're not going to use violence because we know it's not effective. And that's what's happening in Belarus today. Hmm. Uh, yeah. The, um... See, and then, I mean, just yeah, like <laughs> you have to confront that. I mean, like i i've had to like con- i'm confronting that it's like i don't want to do that at all like when it comes but when it die. comes down no saying? no yeah i don't want to like risk my life at all like that's why jacob and i were talking about some yates poem like about like the irish revolution and it's just fucking so sad it's just total it like it it's not a resignation to dying but it is like a sort of like mournful um allegiance to a struggle that poem that sounds nice yeah it is nice it's really good i don't know i i think that's right but you you have to like have some way of dealing with it and i'm like uh leaning towards i'm leaning back towards my the liberation theology uh college time i wonder in dealing with that yeah i I just like, I mean, part of the thing that I think makes really good nonviolent movement is like they, people have to believe in something so strongly. And part of the reason that drives that like strength of belief is like the level of repression that they're facing. Um, And so it just, it makes it hard for me to see like current day Americans Ex- like experience right. unbelievable repression that pushes a large movement towards people like being really willing to die for the movement. Like, it's yeah, just, I know. Repression is, hmm. is like you can live a mostly okay life. Right. Even if you are yeah. racism and facing horrible things in this country. I mean, I also think. It's easy to avoid sometimes. That, I th- that situation I think in Ireland. Some people that, can't. Yeah, I was gonna say that situation in Ireland that Nico's referring to. There was like a a fourteen percent infant mortality rate in Dublin at the time. Like, completely preventable death was like all around. You know, like that decision to 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 fight and die. And even then, it was a smaller group of people who imported some guns and staged a revolution that most people didn't support until it, the crackdown came um, <laughs> afterward. So like. Yeah, I I just think like in the United States now, are we really at a position at a place where like that kind of risk makes any sense to most people? Uh, not yet, but clo- we could be soon. <laughs> but yeah, I think uh, I mean that's I think in a way the election uh, kind of you know release some of that tension um, for maybe for I know a, a lot of people might say for worse, but. It definitely, I feel like, yeah, might have uh, made it so that people aren't feeling the need right now to go to the streets and protest so much because they're hoping that newly elected political leaders will enact the change that they want. Yeah. And maybe that's also <laughs> the trick of democracy, you know? It's it's pulling some of that pressure off. It's letting you blow off steam every four years. Absolutely. Regime change. And so yeah. it isn't this pent-up fight for a big change thing. Yeah, I wonder. Yeah, and... and... I mean, he's promised, he's promised nothing will fundamentally change. And like the, I think for lots of people, that's what they want. Uh, I mean, 
but then there's like 50% of the population, 25% on the right and 25% on the left that do want change. One totally perverted ass backwards change. And then people on the left who want a beautiful, glorious socialist revolution. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, my God. Um, I, I have my tongue in cheek a little bit there. Yeah, obviously. Um, yeah I don't know. I, I, I think we've... Uh... We've aired some thoughts. I, there's been a, a good amount of, of disagreement and agreement here today. Uh, but this is, I think, gone on about long enough for as much as I want to listen through an edit and everything. Um, Jacob, will this, be, will this be interesting for the listener or will this just have been an extremely enjoyable conversation hey, for us? If it, yeah, for us. <laughs> if it was just for us, it's still it's, worth it. It's it's just for us, man. It's for us. Hashtag it's for us. Yeah, the, this is a FUBU podcast. Um that's for us, by us, for the hosts, by the hosts. Um, That's beautiful. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Any uh, cl- closing thoughts, things that you had in your notes that you didn't get out? Um, I thought it was a Foo Bar podcast. Okay. I was fucked up beyond all recognition, personally. Yeah. Um, just kidding. It was great. It was really great. I mean, we definitely took a lot of tangents away from the sure. larger questions of is violence morally permissible? Did we did we attempt to answer that at all? I think I think we I think we bit. talked about its effectiveness a lot. Yeah, I don't yeah. think we talked about the moral question that much because we were like, eh, probably not. <laughs> it's probably not good to kill anybody. Um, but also, like, yeah, you know, these questions are large enough to spend your entire life studying, and I mean, you still don't come to an answer. Like, you know, that you sent that article about that Anabaptist. Um, that's my advisor. <laughs> professor um and he teaches nonviolence, and you know he is confronted by his like i don't know young sons who tell him like it's not that simple it's more complicated than that it's more contextual than that and Mm -hmm. it just yeah it's like a constant thing that you have to struggle with even if you're an expert every day forever yeah i would say the things i want to i would uh that I want to emphasize is that uh, yeah that 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 there are these nuances that like just referring to things as violent or nonviolent and condemning all the ones that are violent I think is a uh, is is fraught that there's there's pro- like damage to people damage to property force in self defense force in coercion um, armed struggle unarmed struggle there's there's a lot of like uh, sort of layers and types of things and and that like a lumping them into into two very broad categories isn't i think very helpful i think it is helpful for discrediting movements more so than it is for uh for strategizing um for their benefit that uh other piece i would add is that uh that the over meta overly metaphorical language around the word violence that use of the word violence that that is pretty pervasive on the 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 american left um i think does damage to the uh ability to to like have a public conversation about these things that um i think it is important to recognize that like you know in order for you to have your um you know your can of beer that that aluminum came from a mine in which like a working regime like a labor regime is upheld with violence that and that like it was transported to you using oil and they, that is maintained with violence. Like these things that we, we talk about as a, as systemic violence, violence inherent to the systems that we, that we live in is useful 
to talk about but there's a way that that becomes overly metaphorical to where you're not necessarily to where people start to say things like you know criticizing me in public is violence and uh to where to where eventually like oh somebody the term gets diluted to, to where it's it it's becomes difficult to have this conversation without like a lot of back- I mean, we all have a lot of background in in this and know what we're talking about i feel like we ignored some of the basics of of uh, not ignored but like breeze past the idea of talking about like um the what is it to create like um contradictions within your the oppressor's view of like you know what it, like creating those scenarios in which like the police officer the military personnel whatever say like i didn't sign up for this um that i don't know i don't know what i'm getting at with this i, I had a point in the trailing off but th- those are kind of some of my my closing thoughts um it's it's more complicated than than the public than the, like msnbc roundtables give it credit for when when someone breaks a window or like gets punched at a at a rally um and that uh oh i'll I'll plug history like look look to history and try and assess things that that are a little further back and that you're a little less emotionally heated by Uh, i would i would just like to say this was uh a wonderful conversation it left me inspired uh because i love all of you and uh i also think just like this conversation sort of doubled down on my thought that you have to look at the thing that's immediately in front of you, like your actual life, and just say, like, what is the, the strategy that is appropriate for me? Like, what is the movement that I should be a part of that's in front of me right now? Um, like, I, uh, I wanted to say this earlier, um but there was like a tweet from the leader of portland dsa during the summer uh responding to everyone yelling at them that they should like be out of like go to like meetings or like public forums for like at city hall and like say these things and she was just like we do all of this like people don't realize that this is we try all of these other things and when it doesn't work we go to the streets and i think that's sort of like a way to deal with these questions that are like um for like smarter people than i to answer um my only final thought is that i uh hope that somewhere in heaven patrick van Anujan is smiling down on us because i feel like this uh, conversation just reminded me of him. So. Um, and yeah, prayers up. Yeah. And he would be arguing against our idea that destroying property is okay. It would be so good to have him here. He would yeah. be uh, a real pleasure.